Thanks, Todd. Like Todd said, my name is Johnny Russell, and I get to uh, be here today. I am a shepherding elder here at the Bethel Church South Campus, and I want you to know that if you write in that book, I pray for you. Ross says that each week. Todd says that each week, but we pay those guys to pray for you, and I'm a volunteer, and I pray for you. Just know that. So uh, when Ross called me two weeks ago, uh, he asked me to fill in for him when he was going to be out of the pulpit. Uh, I, I, I always jump at that opportunity. I love to, to speak. I love to teach. Uh, when you teach or speak up here, it's actually called preaching, Jordan. Uh, so uh, I'm preaching to y'all this morning. So I was delighted to do that. <clears throat> Ross said, hey, just so you know, uh, I'm going to be taking, uh, I'm going to preach on Lazarus, which I'm like, of course you are. That like is a pastor or a fill-in person. Teaching on Lazarus is a home run. Like that's the easiest passage you could ever teach on. So Ross was kind enough to uh, teach on that and then skate out of town as he told me. And I'm going to let you take over the end of John chapter 11. And I'm like, John chapter 11, the end of it. What? Is that it's before the anointing? And so he goes, you know, like when they plot to kill Jesus and Caiaphas has these prophetic words. And I said, oh, yeah, I lied to my pastor. Uh, so I lied to him. I'm like, I don't really know. So I'm in my truck and I keep a Bible in my truck because I'm spiritual. And so I pick it up and I start flipping through it and I'm looking. It says the plot to kill Jesus. And you know you're um, in over your head when there's no highlighted marks. There's no little mar There's no stars. Uh, I'm not even sure that page has been looked at before. And so I'm like... Oh, snap. And so I will let you know that for two weeks I have been sweating and combing through this passage. And I'm really excited to get to teach it um, with you guys this morning. And so this passage uh, is going to maybe appear to be obscure. This passage is maybe appear to be uh, simple and really kind of an often overlooked passage, I think, in the book of John. It's going to fall right in between two mammoth passages with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in, earlier in John 11. And then the start of John 12, we see Mary anointing Jesus. Again, just softballs for people just to, you know, bam, crank a home run. Ross will be back in the pul pulpit next week for another home run. So make sure you return. And so this right here, Ross alluded to it last week, the plot to kill Jesus, that this is going to be Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That was the nail in the coffin for Jesus. That was, as they say, the straw that broke the camel's back. And it's going to speed up, if we can speed up God's plan, right? Go with me. If we can speed up the imminent death of Jesus. And so since September, for the past six-ish months, we collectively as Bethel Bible Church and White House and downtown and here and Hope Church and North Tyler, we have been studying the book of John. And so we have been studying the book from chapter 1 to 11, which I'm going to land the chapter 11 plane today. This, for John, this is him arguing for or defending um, who Jesus 
is that he is the Christ. It is John's apologetic discourse on here's why you should believe. These 11 chapters that have taken us six months happen over a period of about three and a half years, right? So since September, six months, we've been grinding through John, 11 chapters, three and a half years in the Bible text. So now the following eight chapters that we'll get to in the future here, just so you know, this is a spoiler alert. If you don't know what comes, this is the rest of the story, right? As Paul Harvey says, for anyone over 40 in here. I ain't got a few chuggles for you. I know Paul Harvey. Um, so we have John 1 through 11. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Now we're going to enter into John 12 through 19. And these things are going to slow way down. We're going to creep through from a biblical time text, timetable, uh, but it's going to take us up until Easter. And so John 12, we see that Jesus has come back to Bethany where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And that's where Mary is going to anoint Jesus. She really pours herself out for Jesus, this great example of what love is. She's really preparing him for his burial that is to come in a few chapters. Uh, verse John, or I'm sorry, John 13 through 17, these next five chapters are going to be uh, a dinner with Jesus, an intimate dinner with Jesus in the upper room, known as the upper room discourse. It's going to be Jesus and his 12 disciples having a candlelight dinner with Jesus himself. Valentine's Day just passed. Taylor Heaton did that for Olivia, had a little, little candlelight action, right? And so there's intimacy in that five chapters one night we're going to creep through that and there's a lot going on during that time john 18 and 19 man we're going to we're going to watch we're going to watch in horror as jesus is dragged out of the garden put on trial and crucified that's going to take place on a Friday. But as they say, Friday's here, but Sunday is coming because Easter is coming. People, we have a lot to celebrate, and we're going to celebrate that in John chapter 20 and 21. So let's back up and let's get our bearings on this passage so that we can dive in into John 11, 45 through 57. So Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, completing his seventh sign or seventh miracle and you might be thinking wait seven miracles jesus did more than seven miracles and i would affirm you don't freak out i would say yes he did that's why john in chapter 20 verse 30 and 31 john writes these things to us <clears throat> says jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book John only recorded in his book what he wanted us to know. He wanted us to focus on these seven signs, these seven miracles, as we launch into the next eight, ten chapters. If you want to see those other miracles, check out Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He goes on to say, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
So John is reflecting back on these verses, back on this section, the plot to kill Jesus. He's writing his book in about 80-ish A.D. So 50 years after the death of Jesus, John is able to have a very unique perspective. He has an amazing vantage point. You, maybe you've heard the term that hindsight is 2020, right? Man, it's easier to know what you should have done when you, you're removed from that. And so John is writing about those things. So before we pick up what I would call this epic saga here at the end of John 11, I want you to think about this phrase that I'm not going to tell you yet, but I'm going to give you three stories, and then we're going to dive into the passage. But as I begin, think about this word, these two words, perspective matters. Perspective matters. So little Eric grabbed his bat. Notice that I said little Eric. My name's Johnny. All the time it was always little Johnny this, little Johnny that. I didn't use that. I went with Eric here. I got a way better response in the first hour. Uh, little Eric grabbed his bat and ball and headed out into the backyard. Eric set the stage saying, I am the best batter in the world. He threw up the ball in the air and with the swing of the bat, the ball hit the ground and he said, strike one. Eric picked up the ball again and announced, I am the best batter in the world. He tossed the ball into the air only to hear the ball hit the ground. Strike two, he said softly. Eric then picked up the ball and with gusto shouted, I am the best batter in the world. He tossed the ball in the air and with all his might, he swung the bat only to watch the ball hit the ground. He slowly <laughs> looked around and picked up the ball and then shouted, I'm the best pitcher in the world. Perspective matters. Jack wanted to please his father. Jack, as a freshman, went out for track. Rhymes with Jack. He had no athletic ability, uh, though his father had been a good miler in his day. His first race was a two-man race. Remember that? That in which he was going to race against the school record holder. And he, Jack, was beaten badly, not wanting to disappoint his father. I can understand that. The boy wrote home the following message. Dad, you will be so happy to know I ran against Bill Williams, the best miler in school. He came in next to last while I came in second. See that? Two-man race. He's telling it from his perspective. Perspective matters. And lastly, true story. Thomas Wheeler, the former CEO of the Mutual Life Insurance Company. Ladies, you're going to want to write this down. Uh, it says, driving down the highways with his bride, he noticed that he was low on gas. So, of course, he's going to pull over and get some gas. But he pulled up to a rundown gas station with only one gas pump. He asked the loan attendant to fill the fill up the tank and to check the oil and then Thomas gets up and walks around to stretch his legs when he returned he noticed his wife talking to the attendant in an animated conversation which probably bred some insecurity as he paid he heard his wife say it was great talking to you and as he drove away he asked his wife if she knew the man she said actually yes and that they had gone to school together and they had dated for a year well, Wheeler, 
looks at his wife and says, boy, were, were you lucky that I came along. If you had married him, you would have been the, the spouse. Uh, you would have been married to the gas station attendant instead of to the CEO. She kindly looked at him and said, my dear, if I had married him, he would be the CEO and you would be the gas station attendant, right? Perspective matters all the wives. Can I get an amen from the ladies up in her? Exactly. I, I thought I almost heard a clap too. Man, Bethel South getting crazy. Tell you what, perspective matters. Remember that as we launch into John 11. Let's go there now. It says, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man, Jesus, performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place or our, or our temple, and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. He did not say this. Remember, John, again, is writing this from 50 years later. A whole different perspective. John writes, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Verse 54, therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. We are so blessed to have your holy scriptures. Pray that we would treat them delicately and they would this time would honor you, Father. Would you be with us? Thank you for our church and your word in your name. Amen. And so we just saw in these 13 verses that there are two different perspectives going on. We have the perspective of Caiaphas in addition to the Sanhedrin, and then we have God's perspective, only confirming that God's simple truth is this, that Jesus' death was God's design. Jesus' death was God's design. And so let's launch into these as we unpack this passage verse by verse. Verse 45 says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith 
in him. And so um, family members, neighbors, people in the country, they come to witness Jesus doing only what Jesus can do. He raises Lazarus from the dead. It wasn't that Lazarus had just stopped breathing for, you know, a second or an hour. This dude was dead as a doornail, as we say, right? He, Jesus, raises a decaying, decomposing corpse. And notice what the result is. Some put their faith in him. Some believed. As a pastor, as a church, as a body of believers, that is what we are praying for, that people would believe, would come to faith in who Jesus is. And every encounter of Jesus calls for a response. There's either acceptance or there's a maybe, which is actually a no. So there's either an acceptance or a denial. One group believes, and we celebrate that, but not everyone believes. And that's why John writes in verse 46, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Some of the Jews, it's baffling to read, and and I don't know if you're like me, but I think that's crazy that these guys saw Jesus do miracles, and they did not believe. But I think that if I'm honest, I probably fall into that category as well. I see God move, and maybe I didn't have the eyes to see that. So these people, they see what Jesus had done, raising Lazarus from the dead, and they go, and they tattletale on him, right? Oh my gosh, it just grates me. So they go and they report what happened. And so now we move back to Jerusalem where a different scene is taking place. Verse 47. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This is a significant meeting. This is, I think in John, I think this is the first time that we see the Sanhedrin. It's the first time we hear their name. It's the first time we see them gather so the chief priest, which is going to be Caiaphas, and the Pharisees, they gather this council. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 members, part Sadducees, part Pharisees, plus one, making it 71, which would be the high priest that year, which is Caiaphas. The Pharisees were not a political party at all. They, uh, they want, they, their sole interest was living according to every detail of the law. They didn't care who ruled as long as they were to um, practice their meticulous obedience of the law. That was the Pharisees. The Sadducees, on the other hand, are intensely political. They are the wealthy and aristocratic party. They are all about collaborating with Rome, which at this point has ruled Israel for almost 100 years. And the Sadducees want to collaborate with Rome as long as they are allowed to uh, retain their wealth and their comfort. And I'm like, yeah, me too. Their prestige, uh, position of authority. Those things that you and I, if we're honest, we get really comfortable in. And the Sadducees, 
they'll, they'll, they'll collaborate with Rome as long as they get to kind of live how they want to live. And so because it's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, this Sanhedrin holds both political and the spiritual power of the day, yet they fall under Roman authority. And so they come together for one purpose and one purpose only. We're going to continue on in verse 47. At this council, they say, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man, referring to Jesus, performing many miraculous signs. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And so I'm like, these guys actually have some sort of faith? Because they think if we let Jesus go on untethered, unbridled, then he's going to win everybody to faith. It's like they believe in him, but they can't really buy into him because of the flesh. It says everyone will go, uh, go, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place, which is referring to the temple, and our nation. So here, they're not denying that Jesus has done or did this miraculous sign. They just can't anymore. The evidence is overwhelming. They've tried everything they can think of to discredit Jesus and to stop people from believing and following him. They have made public announcements of disapproval, and that hasn't worked. They've kicked people out of the synagogue, out of the church, and that hasn't worked. They have um, had counter-teachings to try to oppose or trick Jesus, and that has not worked. People are still believing in him, and they're still following him. But notice, man, notice what they're really afraid of. They're thinking Rome will come and they'll take away our place, maybe our home and our temple and our freedom as a nation, what little they had being under Roman authority. Uh, if more, they're thinking if more people begin to follow Jesus, Rome will see this as a threat, potentially an uprising, and they're going to come in, and Rome was the 500-pound gorilla sitting in the room, right? They were the beast. Jesus, in their eyes, is no longer just this minor blasphemer. No, he is a threat to the very existence of their nation. So the goal of this council is no longer to discover the truth about Jesus. This council is now in survival mode. See, it is all about perspective. The one that came to save uh, is feared now as their public enemy, number one. It seems that the underlying tone of the whole Sanhedrin at this point is selfishness, selfishness, and fear. That, gosh, if we don't do something fast, more people are going to believe in Jesus. Rome is going to come and take away our stuff. They sound like little children or just insecure adults, right? Verse 49 says, Then one of them is about to get juicy. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Usually the high priest would be high priest for a lifetime. But Rome, in their ruling, in their authority, they wouldn't allow that to happen because they said, man, if we, if we let Randy be high priest for his entire life, we might lose some of that authority. And so they would switch him out each and every year unless 
that individual found favor with Rome. And Caiaphas was just that high priest. He was incensed. He was their puppet. And he led for several years. And so he kind of, he snaps at these guys. He talks down to these guys and says, you don't know nothing at all. He totally insults them. And then he's going to lay out this amazing plan that he thinks is his. But again, we're going to see it from a different perspective. Verse 50 says, You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So he says, Kaiva says, Dude, the, the, like the solution is simple. We just need to take out Jesus. We need to end his life. We need to eliminate him. We need to sacrifice him for our good and the, the, good, of our, uh, the good of our nation. This is the high priest. Now, now, let's just let that kind of marinate, right? Marinate on us. Like, what is he saying? This guy is outside of his mind. The, the high priest, right? That would be like Ross, kind of Bethel's high priest, if you will. hope that doesn't weird. Uh, but get, you get what I'm saying. Uh, him saying something like that. Like, John, it is shepherding elder. He's acting up. Man, we just need to cap him so that we can move on for our good and the good of the church, right? He's a loose cannon, which is true. Uh, but we need to take him out. No, it's like Caiaphas has lost his mind or he's dialed in and he's just saying these words. Jesus is healing people. He's not hurting them and they want him dead. Jesus is changing lives. He's not challenging the ordinary people, yet they want him dead. Jesus is offering freedom. Like, I just think William Wallace, like, freedom, right? That's what Jesus is offering. Not a life of rules, not a life of burdens, and they want him dead. And these were supposed to be the most spiritual men in the nation in the synagogue, in the church. And I think if we were to walk into their elder meeting, right, you and I would be impressed as they are opening up with prayer, as they're dressed like priests. They're dressed in fine, rich, priestly gear, their robes, their hats. They have tassels hanging from their wrist and their waist, and they've got scripture in the little boxes on their foreheads. We would be impressed. But with all of their religion and all of their Bible knowledge, their perspective is totally wrong. The highest religious leaders of the nation are now deciding to kill an innocent man. Their fear of losing control, their fear of losing status, fear of losing the little bit of freedom that they have is making, is taking everything they know and believe and they're chunking it out the window and they are going to murder an innocent man two great enemies of the faith of the church status and control two great enemies of our congregation status and control these things can creep in to each 
of our lives and they have obviously crept into the lives of the Sanhedrin and now because of who Jesus is it, those things status and control are slipping away from them and they don't know what to do but they do know what to do and they're about to do it in their minds the end is going to justify the means Just notice again how far they have fallen because of their perspective but it's a big but. But here, John is going to write again from 50 years later. John's going to write from 50 years later from another vantage point, verse 51 and 52. Hey, people, just so you know, he's saying, Caiaphas didn't say this on his own. He didn't say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Verse 52, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. Again, hey, Jesus' death, it wasn't Caiaphas. The idea of Caiaphas was my idea. Jesus' death was my design. Don't be alarmed. I have a plan. Gosh. Even though those words came out of the mouth of Caiaphas, John, by God's Spirit, recognizes this deep irony. Caiaphas has no idea of the significance of what has actually come out of his mouth. He just announced the, the prophecy that Jesus' death would be, in fact, for the nation, but not just for Israel, the beloved Israel, but for, the, uh, but for all the children of God scattered abroad. These two verses, we're going to sit here, we're going to simmer here for a little bit as I want to pull out three truths. I'm going to use the word flavor just to spice things up a little bit. And these three flavors are going to have three different perspectives. And so, flavor number one is this. I would suggest you memorize these because I will be asking uh, for y'all to respond at the end. And I know your name. Don't think I don't. I will call you out big time. Flavor number one, God has a plan and it's eternal. God has a plan and it's eternal. The words that Caiaphas spoke, he didn't say these on his own. John says he's, he actually prophesied, again, from a vantage point of 50 years later. He goes, Dude, he didn't say that junk on his own. That was actually God. God brought these words to his mind. God put them there, and God has a meaning in them. On one level, we hear what um, Caiaphas meant, and on another level, there was what God meant. Caiaphas said these words that actually sealed the death of Jesus. Caiaphas wanted Jesus dead and out of the way, and so he spoke. God wanted Jesus dead and raised to life so that Jesus could reign forever. And so God spoke. Here's the point. God is not sitting around and reacting to our crises and trying, trying to manipulate them and turn, turn them into good. He is actually from it. He's actually in it from the beginning, planning it for our good. Planning it for our good. So flavor one was God has a plan and it is eternal. Flavor number two is God has a plan and it is global. God's plan of salvation is just not for the nation of Israel 
for one particular group. One of the best pictures of this is actually um, from, uh, is John actually writing in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. It's the book of Revelation. It's just one revelation. It's not the book of Revelations. Uh, it's one revelation. And John is going to say that um, people are gathered around the throne of God. They're setting, I'm setting the scene for you here. And there's a scroll. This is in heaven. There's a scroll that has seven seals on it. An angel cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll? No one in heaven nor on earth was able to, and there is loud weeping because of that. Then an elder says, weep no more. <clears throat> weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah is here and can open it. Hey, people, chill out. He's here. He's here, and He's the one who can open it. In Revelation, singular, Revelation 5, verse 8 through 10, John says this, And when He had taken the scroll, Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and, a golden, and golden bowls, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Your prayers and my prayers. Bam! written right here in Revelation 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. I have this emboldened and underlined. It says, For you, Jesus, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, from every language, and every people, and every nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth the point here is that the death of Jesus has effects far beyond the ransom of Israel it includes Israel but has reaches far beyond the nation of Israel it includes the entire globe so I'm going I'm to go out on a limb here, and I think it's appropriate. I want you all to lean in, physically lean in. I might tell you something that is going to be earth-shattering to you. Get ready to gasp. Folks, there is life outside of Tyler, Texas. I know. I know. I know. There's life outside of South Tyler. Yes. Believe it or not, you and I, if we are not careful, we can get, we can think that life resides within this six-mile radius of Tyler, Texas. And this is where life is found, and this is where Jesus lives, and this is where my children will be forever safe under my wing as I rule in my kingdom forever. And there is a bigger picture a bigger plan going on and it is from God's perspective life changes drastically when we go from here looking down at ourselves and our little six miles south Tyler radius to actually looking up at others and ultimately to looking up at God and what his perspective is of our life God has a plan and it is eternal. God has a plan, and it's 
global. Flavor number three, God does have a plan, and it is personal. Verse 50 says, It is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And honestly, if, if I, I, I all, when I read God's Scripture, I invite you to, that when you read it, put yourself in here. In, in the mind of Caiaphas, which if I'm honest, I, this makes sense to me. That guy's in the way. That guy is kind of messing with our life. We need to take him out so big brother Rome doesn't come and take me out. Right? I want to take care of him so that they don't take care of me. And the reality is most of us, we're going to go to great lengths to do whatever it takes to keep our desired level of comfort and those around us safe. You and I, we're going to go to great lengths to do whatever it takes to continue in our sweet, desired level of comfort and to keep those around us safe. But in God's mind, which I, I, I struggle with as a, as a fallen man and the old self in my flesh, God's design is this. I'm going to kill my son so that I don't have to kill humanity. God substitutes his son for his enemy. Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Al-Qaeda, our nation, our church, you and me. At the heart of our Christian faith is a very personal word, substitute, substitute. If you haven't memorized scripture in a while, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a great scripture to learn. It says this, that God, God made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, to put on, to put on sin for you and me. God made him, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that in him, in Jesus, we, you and me, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is our substitute. God substitutes us, pulls us off the cross, us away from death, and puts Jesus on the cross. Where we should die, Jesus dies in our place. Where we should receive God's eternal wrath and punishment. He pours that out on Jesus at the cross. Martin Luther calls the cross the great exchange, which is amazing exchange. This for that, that in the death of Jesus, he dies and we actually get life. He dies and we get life. We give him our sins and he gives us a new beginning. Purity in Christ. We give him our burdens and he gives us freedom. But as God has a plan, so does mankind, so does humanity, so does a lot of agendas out there, right, in our world. This day is no different. So they've, been, they've made their decision, verse 53, it says, So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Game on is what they say. 
Okay, we've let you, Jesus, kind of run amok, do your little deal. We've let you go on. They put, a, they put a line in the sand. They plotted to take his life. And their wheels begin to turn. They're moving towards the cross. Verse 54, it says, Therefore, notice what happens. They put the plane into action. Jesus, actually still in control, does this. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So Jesus no longer walks openly among them. He goes off to Ephraim, which is probably about two miles from Jerusalem, to the start of this region called Ephraim, about two miles to the beginning, about 15 miles to the end. And he's going to hang out there until it's his time, until he says it's his time to go back. <clears throat> so here's what we're seeing, that no human council, no human court, no human group of so-called religious leaders could force the hand of God. They could not force the death of Jesus. It is all done under the timing of his father. And so like I said before, uh, John here is really going to slow down. We're about to go into slow-mo speed as he begins his writings. As the cross, his death, his resurrection is only days away. Yet, it is quickly approaching. Verse 55 says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, and so we're entering into the most important Passover celebration our world has ever experienced. This is the third and final Passover that Jesus will experience. <clears throat> this Passover will be where Jesus, if you haven't heard it by now, this is when Jesus is going to lay down his life, where he's going to die on the cross and be the ultimate Passover lamb. And notice the curiosity of many still in verse 55. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. Verse 56, they kept looking for Jesus and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? Like, people were curious. People wanted to know, is this man named Jesus, is he coming back to the Passover? And if he's coming back, what is he going to say? And what is he going to do? So some are curious. But some, verse 57, But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. We come to the end of John chapter 11. So the word is now out that Jesus is a wanted man, an outlaw. And some think that um, with that request, hey, if anyone sees Jesus around here, tell us. <clears throat> some people think that an actual bounty of 30 pieces of silver is attached to that that whereabouts. Hey, you tell us where Jesus is, and we're going to pay you on the side. And it's this 30 pieces of silver that kind of lure Judas from stepping out of the darkness into becoming part of them and selling out Jesus. And so as I close, I want to circle back around to those three flavors in these three different perspectives, knowing that perspective 
matter. So flavor number one, we know, you know that God has a plan and it's what? It's eternal. When you don't know, just like watermelon, right? Not what we're supposed to do, watermelon. God has a plan and it is eternal. Caiaphas spoke from his perspective, completely motivated by fear and self-preservation, but ultimately God spoke from God's perspective, completely motivated by love and self-denial. God isn't sitting around and reacting to our lives and crisis in our world and somehow manipulating them and, and fumbling around trying to turn things into good. He is actually from it. He's actually in it from the beginning. This is important for us to know. This is important for us to believe. God is working from eternity past to eternity future for our ultimate good. Bethel, I want us to be strong in the face of hard times. Man, these past two-ish years have been a doozy for our congregation. Been extremely challenging. And we have to know, we have to believe that God is in it from the beginning. He's not fumbling around. He's not a careless God. That He has a plan and His plan is eternal. His plan is eternal. Flavor number two, God has a plan and it's what? Global. Oh, a couple more people spoke up. What's up, Bethel? That's right. Flavor number two, God has a plan and it is global. That God's plan of salvation is just not for the nation of Israel or one particular nation, hashtag America, right? That's what we think. God has a plan, and His plan is for us as Americans. We want to hoard Him and, and keep Him to ourselves because He really wants us to prosper. The death of Christ, the death of Christ will gather all of His sheep from every nation and tongue and tribe into one fold with one shepherd. This truth should give us confidence in the gospel and in the greater church around the world. And you are loved by God in a very personal way. He chose you, He bought you, and He brought you. Chose you in particular to bring you into His family. And in return, from a global perspective, this directs you and me to love everyone, everywhere, especially those that are different from us. So God has a plan. It's eternal. God has a plan. It's global. And flavor number three, God has a plan and it's what? Personal. Man, y'all are getting the hang of this thing. I'll tell Ross he can actually interact with you guys, right? Jesus, so Jesus died in place of someone else and that someone is actually you. Jesus dies in your place, in my place, and have you have you ever received that truth for yourself? I sat in church for 20 years and never did that. We can, church can kind of become our thing, our salvation. And I, I'm not asking that have you 
gone to Pine Cove. I'm not asking, have you once raised your hand in a Sunday school class? I'm not asking, did you walk the aisle when you were three? I'm asking, have you sat down with Jesus and confessed your sin and believed Him for who He is? This church, this might get another uh, gasp. Bethel doesn't save people. I work for Young Life, a Christian outreach global ministry. Young Life does not save. Donald Trump, don't save. We thought he might. He ain't. Donald Trump, Texas, Tyler, doesn't save. Salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. We have to know and have to believe that and step into that truth. And either you and I, either we're going to die and face eternal judgment on our own, or we're going to allow Jesus to come into our world and to be our substitute and to take that on as he did. Isaiah 53, verse 5 and 6, another great scripture memory, says this says that he, referring to Jesus, written 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene, he says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment, the cross, the beating, the flogging, the punishment that brought us peace was actually upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Man, have you ever accepted Jesus as your substitute, as your Savior? If you haven't, today is your day. Man, if there's something in here, something that I said this morning that resonated with you, that pinged you, you want to talk about it, have questions or comments, then we're actually going to start doing this that after each service that right through those doors on the other side of this wall, we're going to have some elders out there and they would love to talk to you. They're not scary. They don't have rich priestly robes on. They might not even have all of the answers, but we want to create a space where you can go and talk. So if that is you, I would encourage you to do that. Perspective matters. What is your perspective of Jesus this morning? Know that God has a plan. He has a plan. And it's eternal, it's global, and it's personal. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for your word.